Hebrews 20.20, we see Jesus. This is increment 168, and the general title is going to be Terms for Forever, Words That Mean Forever, Iston Aona. We have kind of another A word here going, Aona, for age. And we'll go to Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 16 and open with prayer. And Father, we thank you today for another opportunity to gaze into the perfect law of freedom and to see there the image of your Son, an image into which we are being conformed from one degree of glory to the next as by the Spirit of the Lord. And may the Spirit of the Lord take over at this moment in our hearts and minds and magnify your Son by means of this message. And we ask it in his name, amen. Terms for forever. The text, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 16 through 20, which I'll read my translation in toto to start. Now men customarily swear oaths by something greater than themselves, and for them the oath for confirmation is the end of all contradiction. So when God determined to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of promise, he interposed with an oath. That means literally he mediated or brought into a mediation in the promise with an oath. So that by two immutable things, in both of which God is not able to lie, we who have fled for refuge would have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor for the, for the soul, both sure and secure, a hope that enters into the sanctuary behind the curtain where a forerunner has already entered for us, Jesus, having become an archpriest Forever, and there's our phrase, a term for forever, Iston Aona, after the order of Melchizedek. Forever is the word most English translations use for the Greek phrase, Iston Aona, and it is often translated as forever in this clause, having become an archpriest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In other translations, this phrase is translated to the age. That's Young's literal translation of the Bible. Or it can be translated unto the age, or throughout the age. The latter translations try to preserve the distinction that's often not made between a absolute eternity, which has neither beginning nor end, B, a duration that has a beginning and an end, and that word age can actually be a very brief period, it can be a century, it can be a lifetime, or it can even be a short period of time, and C, the beginning with no end, a beginning with no end. The idea of a beginning with no end is meant in connection with Jesus' forever priesthood. Because there was a moment 
or a time when Jesus became archpriest and archpriest. It says so right here in Hebrews 6.20. It says, Jesus, having become an archpriest. Jesus wasn't born an archpriest, nor did he come into this world as an archpriest, we could argue. Arguably, he became an archpriest at his baptism in the Jordan River by John the Immerser. As this archpriest, he offered himself as the singular and universally efficacious offering to take away sin on the cross. And he was vocationally completed. That's a word we're going to be using quite a bit in the future. Vocationally completed as an archpriest when by his own blood, He entered into the unspeakably glorious heavenly region behind the second curtain of the tent in heaven constructed by God and not man, and as Hebrews 9, 10, and 11 says, not even of this creation. So we're not privy to the exact moment when God the Father said, you are a priest forever like Melchizedek, but we know that he was completed or perfected as the great archpriest forever after the successionless order of Melchizedek. And I'm going to explain what that means. The order of Melchizedek does not speak of a succession of priests, as some people assume and as Christian mystics also speak of. We know that when he was completed, Jesus that is, or perfected as the great archpriest forever, After the order of Melchizedek, when he had offered himself as the expiation for sin once and for all, and when he entered into the heavenly holy of holies, both of these are acts for which he became a priest or by which he became a priest or demonstrated that he was a priest. When he entered into the holy of holies after making expiation for sin. Both of these acts are subsumed into one climactic act of obedience to God the Father's universally saving will. So Terms for Eternity is a book that I find as an invaluable resource, especially for pastors and teachers. It is a book that came about as a collaboration of Alaria Ramelli and David Constan. And it's an invaluable resource, and especially the first 70 pages where many terms for eternity or words used to express eternity in the New Testament are found, also in classical Greek in the Septuagint of the Old Testament. And they write this, often, in fact, aeon in the New Testament, and that's the word that we usually translate as age, A-I-O-N, The omega O is used here. Aeon. And it says, in fact, aeon in the New Testament has the sense of century, that means 100 years, or age, a temporal period. And in this case, it is commonly used in the plural. But it may also indicate, and I loved this when I read it, the future world. It may also indicate the future world, aeon. And 
In this sense, it corresponds to the meaning of, quote, the world to come, close quote, that we have found to be the primary significance of aeonios, this Greek word, in this connection. So the prime use of the word that we translate sometimes as forever or sometimes even as eternity means an age, but it means an age in connection with the future world or the world to come. Now, we know what that that is. Hebrews almost majors on the world to come because we know that Jesus has already entered into that world to come. He's already the object of worship of all of God's angels. And we have a picture of that in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 to 24. That's the world that we're supposed to have our expectation toward as Christians. This future world will include all the generations of humanity living contemporaneously via resurrection. Imagine that. Every era of human history, people from every epoch or every generation living in contemporaneous ways all together at once in accordance with what the eternizing of or the eternizing of all creation means. In future world, all of creation will be eternized in the joy of God, sharing the joy of God, which is inexpressible, sharing the joy of Jesus Christ. And we're going to have a lot more to say about that, how he desires to share his own joy, and his own joy comes from the beatific vision of his Father. And so in the presence of eternity, everything that has happened sequentially in time will be contemporary and present. That's a quote from the Spirit of Hope by Jürgen Moltmann that came out just a little while ago. In the presence of eternity, everything that has happened sequentially in time will be contemporary and present. And of course, that will be absent sin and evil. Moreover, Romelli and Constant very helpfully distinguish the use of aeonios in the New Testament when the word is used particularly in reference to God from its usage as a term for a temporal age or duration. In other words, when the word is used in connection with God, it has a sense of eternity, either absolute eternity with no beginning and no end or what we call in perpetuity, which is eternity having or something everlasting, having a beginning but no end. And so they wrote this, when the reference to God or is to God, aeonios, that's A-I-O-N-I-O-S, like, and here's another word for absolute eternity, it's A-D-I, no, make it A-I-D-I-O-S, aidios, another A word, that means absolute eternity, and it's only used once or twice in the New Testament, probably twice. Romans one twenty, and I believe in Jude, there's another use of it. So when the reference to God, when when the reference is to God, aeonios, like adios, may be presumed to signify eternal, in the sense of perpetual, uninterrupted, as at Hebrews nine fourteen, where it is applied also to the Holy Spirit, numa aeonion. Enduring, too, is the covenant, that's diathekes ionio, 
with that Jesus sealed with his blood. That's another Hebrews reference, 1320. And the text continues by affirming that from Christ, the glory goes from generation to generation, generations to generations. And that word aeonios, tone aeonion is used. And there, aeon has the sense of an age or a temporal period. So when it's talking about God, it's eternal in the absolute sense, like the eternal Holy Spirit. Or it can have the sense of eternity as everlasting, like the covenant that is made in Jesus' blood, the new covenant, which is an everlasting covenant. Now, Origen, and we've spoken a lot about him, O-R-I-G-E-N, from his commentary in Romans 4.10. He's also cited by Ramelli in her article called In a Cloud of Witnesses. He made an authoritative affirmation regarding the eternal and universal saving impact of the cross of Christ. In our study of Hebrews, as in our study of Revelation, called Rev the Book, as in my study of Better Call Paul, the Pauline epistles, as in our study of Romans, we have this theme. It's called UICC, the universal impact of the cross of Christ. And by that I mean the universal impact of the cross of Christ in a saving and efficacious way. I mean redemptive impact. I mean reconciling impact. I mean rectifying impact. I mean restorative impact. And it's universal and it's eternal. And Origen is one of those early theologians called a patristic theologian that agreed with this and understood this very much. He made this statement of faith. Quote, we affirm that the power of Christ's cross and his death, which he undertook at the end of the aeons, A-E-O-N-S, is so great as to be enough for the salvation and remedy, not only of the present and the future aeon, but also of the past aeons, and not only for our human order, but also for the heavenly powers and orders. And, of course, I agree with this because it accords with the universalistic perspective of Paul in both Ephesians and Colossians. When his reconciling work of the cross includes things in heaven, thrones and dominions and invisible principalities and powers, as well as earthly beings, human beings, and even animal creation, all will be reconciled. This accords then with the universalistic perspective of Paul in both Ephesians and Colossians. Ramelli then adds in this article, quote, what emerges from the last passage is also the eminently Christocentric character of the apocatastasis, according to Origen, which completely depends on Christ's sacrifice. And so this is extremely relevant to Hebrews. And Origen actually used Hebrews almost most of all to describe or to prove the apocatastasis that the universal restoration that is Christocentric and comes from the cross of Christ is expressed most notably 
in Hebrews. So I'm so glad we chose that book to study now for the past 167 plus hours. So, and I'm doing a lot of quoting today because this terms for eternity is so important, not only to Hebrews, but throughout the entire New Testament. Then again, Ramelli writes in the same article, in fact, as Origen stresses, still relying on Hebrews, not only is the salvation brought about by Jesus' sacrifice universal, but it is also eternal. This is why it can provide the absolute eternity, that refers to this word, idios, or idiotes, of the apokatastasis, beyond all aeons, or ages, when all multiplicity will be brought to unity and God will be all in all. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-eight. Precisely for its eternity, Jesus' priesthood in Hebrews is repeatedly said to be ice ton aeona, that is, forever, according to the biblical value of aeon as eternity when referring to God. Jesus Christ's sacrifice is what makes it all possible, and that's what our next segment is going to be all about, from Hebrews 7.1 all the way through 10.18, the central section of Hebrews and the heart of the heart of Hebrews has to do with his once and for all and forever and forever efficacious self-sacrifice on the cross, which is what he had to offer as a priest. So as she said, it refers to forever according to the biblical value of aeon as eternity when referring to God. I think there's even a better way of speaking of Jesus' forever priesthood, however. It may be better to say that Jesus' forever priesthood has the sense of perpetual, which is, means it had a beginning but no end. We have asked the question, however, is there a point Or will there be a point in the eschatological future when Jesus' intercession is no longer necessary? But for now, and I'm going to answer that question fairly soon, but for now, as for this phrase, ice tone aeona, and its meaning, we find a great deal of help with another descriptive prepositional phrase in the Hebrews homily. And we find that, and this is, excuse all the Greek exegesis today, but that's part of the whole exposition of Hebrews. Without it, we'd be pretty much without specifics. This is another phrase, eis to dienekis, d-i-e-n-e-k-e-s. The first e is an eta, the last is an epsilon. Aston Dionakis, not Aona this time, but Dionakis. In Hebrews seven three, the word is found. Melchizedek is described as having no record of father or mother. Consequently, there is no priestly genealogy in connection with him at all, as there is a genealogy in connection with all Levitical priests, beginning with Aaron. The big thing about that priesthood was generations after generations, there was a succession, a genealogy, 
of priests. And so that really is the weakness of that priesthood because they stopped being a priest after death. Jesus is a priest forever. And his priest is forever uninterrupted because by his death, he became a priest forever. In resurrection, therefore, he represents us in an incorruptible life and a deathless life. And so there's no need for succession in his case. So DNA case used in Hebrews 7.3, again, is used in describing this character Melchizedek that we're going to look at in great detail in the future. He's described as having no record of father or mother. Consequently, there's no priestly genealogy in connection with him. Moreover, when the English texts translate the next part of that verse as remains a priest forever, it is not eis ton eona, but eis to dianekis. And that means on and on perpetually without interruption and without end. Likewise, in Hebrews 10.12, where the writer speaks of Jesus' priestly offering as being one sacrifice forever, the word forever is not the translation of the phrase eis ton eona, but again, eis to dianekis. And again, in Hebrews 10.14, where it says, by one offering, he has perfected forever. That word is, that phrase again is eis to dianekis. You'll see this in print in your printed form of this message. Forever, those who are sanctified. By one offering, he has perfected forever, eis to dianekis, those who are sanctified. And that phrase also is often translated as forever. Dianakis has a resonance with me because to this day, well, this might change very quickly, but to this day my favorite work of historical fiction is Gates of Fire by Stephen Pressfield, which is a story of the Spartan warriors who ended up at the Hot Gates or Thermopylae and held off tens of thousands of Persians for a week, which really changed all of Western civilization as we know it for the better and prevented it from a conquest by a very tyrannical power. But Dionakis happened to be the name of the main character, one of the main characters in that novel called Gates of Fire. His name was well selected as a Spartan warrior whose main characteristic throughout the book is his continual endurance. Dianakis means literally, according to the Freiburg lexicon, stretched the whole length and has come to mean continuous. And so that was a very meaningful word, a pretty good choice by Stephen Pressfield to describe a character, Dianakis, because he endured all the way until he gave his life at the hot gates. I say that that was my favorite book up to now, but now I'm reading another one by Pressfield that was published this very year in 2021 called A Man at Arms, and it happens to be taking place in the Sinai Desert in the 50s AD, and there is a curious reference to a man who had a glorious experience on the road to Damascus whose name is Paul, and it's all centered around 
a Roman mercenary who's hired, or in fact, instead of being executed, he's hired to find a courier who's carrying a piece of writing or a letter that was penned by the Apostle Paul that caused the whole Roman Empire to be pretty scared and pretty frightful. So this may pan out to be my favorite novel, even greater than The Gates of Fire. And the main character's name in this case is Telamon, a Greek name. So I just thought I'd take that little digression. Now, so DNA case means literally stretched the whole length, and it came to mean continuous. Its idiomatic temporal use includes the idea of continually or perpetually or for all time. So it's another term for forever. The sense is lasting forever or never-ending. Our word perpetual denotes unending duration. It may be better than continually, continual because though continual can indicate what is intermittent or repeated at intervals, perpetual stresses the idea of an unending duration. It's never interrupted by anything at all. It is certainly true that the saving efficacy of Jesus' once and for all act of expiation for sins is unending and not intermittent. And his efficacy is unlike that of vaccines, universal, universally effective and perpetually effective, savingly. There is never a failure of efficacy or a need for a booster with Jesus' expiatory sacrifice. Moreover, his sacrifice is not only efficacious for some people and not for others, it is universally effective and eternally. Forever is really not a bad translation in this case. There's a lot of new writers that I read now that don't want to use the word forever. They want to use for an age or to an age or through an age or throughout an age. And that's not bad because I know they're trying to get exact. But I like forever for a lot of different reasons. Forever is really not a bad translation in this case. Jesus is an archpriest forever as opposed to the archpriest of the Aaronic order who served as priests only as long as they lived in this world. Hence the need for succession. In any case, both ice to dianekes and ice ton eona seem to mean in perpetuity. So therefore, they are what I would call terms for forever. The translation to the age, unto the age, or throughout the age imply the possibility of an ending of the priesthood of Jesus. That's why I'd rather have the word forever, because we know what that means, even in our English idiom. We know forever means it's never going to end. That is to say, if there's another age succeeding the present age, however, will there be a need for him to be archpriest and to perpetually intercede for people? That's a good question. More dramatically, will Jesus still be functioning as our great archpriest after we've been saved to the uttermost, as Hebrews 7.25 says? Saved to the uttermost means that we're saved to the point of being like him, 
save to the point of a total transformation, save to the point of glorification. And so will there be, will Jesus still be functioning as our great archpriest after we've been saved to the uttermost and when God is finally all in all? The furthest stretch of, stretch of prophecy, the furthest horizon of prophecy in the New Testament is 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty eight. when God becomes all in all. That's when Jesus will have not only submitted himself, but all the creation that he has redeemed in him, he submits to the Father. And the Father, therefore, becomes all and in all. That's what they call the universal perichoresis. Will there be need, then, for Jesus to be our great archpriest interceding for us when God is all and in all? And I think the answer to this is that Jesus will no longer need to make intercession for us when God is finally all in all, but that he will still have the honor of our great archpriest and the glory of the great king while his priestly and royal identities will be sublated in an even higher integration of life and livingness in the day of God. In other words, it will never be forgotten that his supreme sacrifice is the reason for the universal perichoresis, the mutual interpenetration of God and all of creation. So as usual, the answer to some question like that is in a middle term. We're going to speak more about that down the road, I think. Jesus, the forerunner for us, in fact, we may even be calling the year coming up something that has to do with the great king. 2021, we've dubbed, for Tetelestai Phalanx, we've dubbed it the year of the great king. And next year, we just might call it, at least a candidate for what I'm going to call next year, just might be called the year of the great king's highway. And we'll be seeing what that means. Jesus, the forerunner for us, has entered the innermost sanctuary, having become an archpriest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He's our forerunner. The word prodromos means just that, a forerunner for us. That's God's promeity. That's God showing that he is entirely for us by having a forerunner. Jesus has entered in for us And that's the guarantee that we will also enter into that region beyond the second curtain into future world and into the undescribable, indescribable joys and glories of future world. What may escape our notice, however, here is that if we're not closely attentive, is that Jesus has become an archpriest for the age after the order of Melchizedek by a divine oath, kata ten taxin Melchizedek, according to the order of Melchizedek. He is a priest forever. God declared it, but he started by saying, I swear by my own self and will not regret it and will not turn back You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And that's the word kata, the phrase, K-A-T-A, kata, tain, and then taxin, T-A-X-I-N, taxin. And then the word Melchizedek, M-E-L-C-H, 
I-S-E-D-E-K. We're going to be talking a lot about this gentleman in the future. Uh, he occupies a lot of room in the central section of Hebrews. So according to the order of Melchizedek, which is found in Hebrews 5.6, Hebrews 5.10, right here in 6.20, and again in 7.11 and 7.17, it's a designation lifted directly from the Septuagint of Psalm 109.4. In your English Bible, it's 110.4. The literal meaning of the phrase is according to the order of, of, or in the order of. Taxon, therefore, can refer to a fixed succession or order, and it could apply to the fixed succession of Levitical priests from Aaron onward. That was an order of priests, a priestly order, a succession of priests. Kata ten taxon can also have the meaning of according to the nature of and it just means just like. So we could say, you're a priest forever just like Melchizedek or according to the nature of Melchizedek. But this is, there's a strong probability that this is what the intended meaning of the pastor teacher was here because Melchizedek was not the beginning of a succession of priests like Aaron was. There wasn't a secret succession. And there's a lot of speculation people like to make Mystical speculations. Was there an order of Melchizedekan priests that went up to Jesus? And then after Jesus, does that order of Melchizedekan priests happen? Has he passed it along to another and to another and to another? So there, there is a priest after the order of Melchizedek alive today. And the answer is no. Melchizedek was not the beginning of a succession of archpriests as Aaron was. Unlike Aaron and the order of Levitical priests, Melchizedek only appears once in the whole Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, only to pop up one more time in what is arguably the most often cited psalm in the New Testament, Psalm 110. Jesus cannot be said to be an archpriest in a succession of or an order of priests because like Melchizedek, he is a unique figure in Scripture. However, the wording in the order of may well have been chosen by the Holy Spirit to reveal that Jesus is precisely not of an order of archpriests beginning with Melchizedek. His appearance on the stage of this world at the juncture of the ages was unique as is his function and identity as archpriest forever, or, if you want, for the age. The literal meaning of kata ten taxen Melchizedek is therefore according to the order of Melchizedek, but there is no order of Melchizedek, and that's the point. Jesus isn't a member of an order of priests, like the Levitical priests, or the order of Aaron. Nor is he a member of a priestly order like the Jesuit or the Capuchin or the Franciscan orders of priests. Like Melchizedek, he is a priest without a priestly genealogy. He stands alone, and his offering is once and for all. Now, there are a kingdom of priests 
under him. And that may be the subject of our next increment in which I explore our vocation being mediation. What's our vocation? Mediation. So in closing, therefore, contrary to mystical speculation, there is no succession of Melchizedekan priests like Franciscan priests or Jesuit priests or Levitical priests beginning with Aaron and down to Caiaphas when Jesus was incarnate. Jesus is like Melchizedek precisely because he does not belong to a succession of priests according to genealogical succession. He is a unique and standalone archpriest whose offering was a one-off sacrifice that is efficacious for all of humanity, for all of time. And that is our thesis, our central thesis for Hebrews. Hebrews speaks of a salvation that is both universal and eternal and radically Christocentric and the result of his once and for all and forever sacrifice. In my early days, I spoke of the eternal nature of his sacrifice. In my latter days, I'm speaking of the universal nature of his sacrifice. And hopefully the two will gel and bring great joy to a host of people. According to the nature of is another good translation for katatentaxin or taxin, katatentaxin. Another word or another sense of it is according to the nature of. That's another acceptable translation, and it probably gives the sense very well. And so this sets up a comparison between Jesus and Melchizedek, which is done only in Hebrews in all the New Testament. Nowhere else. Nowhere else in the New Testament is Melchizedek mentioned, only in Hebrews. There are priesthoods mentioned in First Peter and Revelation, There is never the mention of Melchizedek. So we're headed for a very unusual, in fact, we are headed for a unique representation of Jesus Christ in comparison with Melchizedek. It can be said that the archpriesthood of Jesus will be sublated. That's a term that means integrated but not negated. It can be his archpriesthood in answer to our question, will it ever end or will his intercessory ministry ever end? It can be said that the archpriesthood of Christ will be sublated and that means not ever negated, but it will be integrated into an even higher integration in the ages to come, as Ephesians 2.7 puts it, when God is all and in all and when all of humanity and all of creation are in God and God is in all of creation. That's called panentheism, which we're going to explore also in the future. So salvation is not only universal, but eternal. The salvation that was wrought by Jesus Christ on the cross is not only universal, but eternal. It is not only eternal, but universal. It is both eternal and universal because Jesus has both universal and eternal saving significance. Far from being a proof of salvation's insecurity, like preachers use Hebrews 6 for, they use Hebrews 6 to prove the insecurity of salvation, they call it. 
far from being a proof of salvation's insecurity, Hebrews 6 in its totality and by its final statements and declarations becomes one of the most assuring and soul-stabilizing passages in all of Scripture and makes it to be without contradiction that Jesus Christ's significance is saving, is eternal, and is universal. So thank you, Father, for that assurance. And may we all who hear this message today come to a full assurance of hope so that we can mediate this hope to a world that is without hope. And we ask this in Jesus' name, in Jesus, who is our hope. Amen.